welcome to another episode of A Novel Evening. I'm Danny. Uh, I'm on Instagram as at Blotted Ink Books. And it's another crazy exciting episode for me. Like, I just want to explain how, like, just ridiculously excited and a little bit stunned I am that some of the absolute coolest authors ever are willing to come and chat nonsense with me um it's just it's my dream quite frankly um and this week i am joined by the awesome aj west he is the author of the spirit engineer um which i read back in creepy season it was awesome um it was everything i needed in a spooky seancey uh you know it's it's influenced by history with a little twist um it's amazing. And he's also co-hosting this year's The Book Party, um, which is shaping up to be pretty damn awesome. Um, I have to say there are so many authors going and so many bloggers I'm super excited to meet. So if you don't have a ticket and you can get to London for the 16th of July, do it. Come say hi. Come and dance with me to some Venga Boys. Let's do it. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm joined by AJ and we're going to chat all about his novel evening. So a massive hello to AJ. Hello. 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 How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you on this sunny spring afternoon? Uh, hungover. I'm, I'm, I'm having that awful type of day. You know, I suppose you don't, because you're a mum, you don't get to do this really. I'm going to show off now, but I'm having one of those awful days where you look out and the sun, the sky's blue and the sun's shining and I haven't stepped foot outside the door. Uh, so I feel a bit guilty, like I've wasted the day. I know the guilt. I know the guilt. When it's especially British sun, when it comes out, you have to go outside. Yes, I think I would melt. I just I, last night I went to watch a wonderful play in Vauxhall. It was very funny. There were lots of homosexual gentlemen there and we were drinking quite a lot. So um, you've persuaded me to have hair of the dog. I'm, I'm drinking flat champagne. Mm, I'm going to enjoy my strawberry and lime cider because I think that's a nice. It's a summer afternoon drink. So I think it's allowed. But so is flat champagne. So. I think you're well, I think if I write an autobiography, I'll call it flat champagne. I feel like that sums up my life. <laughs> I think that's really apt. <laughs> I yeah, buy it. Like it's kind of it's it's kind of posh, kind of bougie, but ultimately disappointing. Uh, oh, that's I was gonna say that's sweet, but <laughs> that's, that's gonna be the quote for my next book. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, maybe you could apply that to all aspects of your life. I feel like if you just give people that. People will never be disappointed because they'll never aim high. Exactly. I, I, I aim for people to expect mediocrity. <laughs> and then they'll just be so pleased when you're above average. Yes, exactly. You're kind of going with me a little bit more on this than I thought you would. I thought you might kind of push back. <laughs> just like, a little no, no, bit. I mean, amazing. I'm trying to be falsely humble here. I'm being falsely modest. The way this works... Danny, just in case you're obviously not okay. au fait, is that oh. I say something modest and you correct me and then I, I feel good about that because my ego's been <laughs> handed to. You get it? See, my ego is just so large that I've never <laughs> had to experience this because people just tell me I'm great constantly. So I'm just not used well, you to are. Oh, well, thank you. You are great. Yeah. <laughs> See, you know what you're doing. <laughs> You've done this before. You're even, you're brilliant. You're not great. You're brilliant. You're extraordinary. You are. You are effervescent. You are. You're a. You're a, a, a universal goddess. Let's just. We could just do a full hours podcast of you telling me how great I am. But we probably should talk about writing. Uh, yeah. Good idea. Sadly, yeah. 
Now, so you are now obviously a published author with The Spirit Engineer, which is fantastic. I loved it. It was, I read it in the very sort of midst of autumn, which was perfect. It is like the perfect creepy nighttime read. Uh, where did you kind of, because obviously a few people obviously know you were on Big Brother. Yes. Yes. Um, I've never watched Big Brother really, so apologies. I'm not your number one fan for that. Uh, but you've obviously worked <laughs> in other media forms as well. Has writing always been a passion for you? Yes, writing has always been a passion for me. It's been the passion, really, uh, since I was a young boy at school with no friends and uh, very, very shy. Um, reading was my friend and, um, you know, the characters in the books I, I was reading really kept me company. And it was a very natural thing for me to um, transfer my love of reading words to writing them. And, and so one of my first... One of my first and few happy memories of primary school, actually, um, is a particular day when the teacher asked me to read a story that I'd written about Howard Carter discovering Tutankhamun's tomb, which I absolutely loved that year. We, we learned about the ancient Egyptians and um, I read I read wrote a little story and I, I, I can't remember what wording I used. I used some word like twinkled or something. I don't know. The teacher said it was um, very grown up. And it was very well written. And I remember just absolutely glowing. It meant the world to me. And it was, I, I remember thinking um, amidst what was, as I say, for me, a very anxious and quite a sad time, really. I wasn't a very happy little boy. Like I say, I was quite lonely and I felt like I was the odd one out. Because um, in my school, if you didn't play football or you weren't good at football, then you really, there was no point in you existing. Um, so, uh, but in that moment when the teacher said, oh, well done, Andrew, that was really, really good. Um, I thought, oh, I want that feeling again. It, it made me feel, it made me feel as though I'd done something that mattered. And I think, I think that's a feeling that I've never lost really. So, so to be a published author is, is not for me kind of like a, a sideline or something I did because uh, I was made redundant or, or, you know, something like that. It was, it really is the, the culmination of, you know, an, an absolute life's um, passion uh, for, for trying to be a better writer. I'm still trying to be a better writer, but uh, I made I made it with the first one um, to publication, and that, and that yeah, massive, massive. That's really resonated with me, actually. Um, I really felt when you said I was not very happy when I was in primary school. Um, I was a bit of a strange girl. Um, I wasn't particularly popular. Uh, I wasn't kind of the the pretty blonde girl with lots of friends. I was the quiet one that had lots of books and used to make up very odd stories. And I think there's something so when you say books for your friend. I really feel that and I can't imagine how it feels for your book to be out there for somebody who is, you know, seeking solace in books and reading and that's their, their love and their passion to then pick that up and I think that's incredible. I really do. Yeah, it's, I, it's you know, it's a, a bit of a cliche, isn't it, or a truism that uh, <laughs> the, the quirky kids who don't fit in at school are often the people who do, uh, you know, more unusual, um, dare I say, exciting things when they get older. And I and I, I hesitate to say that because there'll be, you know, people who are popular at school listening. And I don't want to, <laughs> I think sometimes kids who are bullied at school almost have their revenge by saying, oh, we're the cool kids now. Um, and I know some uh, cool kids from school who are still very, very lovely. But it, it, it's certainly true that if you were a quiet, um, uh, maybe slightly eccentric child, then there's a very good chance you'll be um, a, a very wonderful grown up. 
And that period of feeling lonely and feeling isolated for me, um, I think made me a real people watcher. And that's really useful for my writing. No, I completely, I completely see that. And you obviously touched upon, you know, you've loved learning about Tutankhamun. Um, that made me smile as well because I was a real Egyptology nerd when I was about seven or eight years old. Um, so that really made me smile. And obviously now you're in, you know, you're writing historical fiction. Um, the Spirit Engineer is based on a, a true story, as it were, and, and real life characters. So was that kind of always your kind of goal, do you think, to write historical fiction? Was that kind of where you were drawn to? It was where I was drawn to. I think it's also the uh, literature that I tend to read most. Um, it wasn't a conscious thing. I didn't, I didn't ever think I would want to be an author and I would want to be a historical fiction author. And in a way, uh, in a way, there are times when I wonder whether it was the wisest decision. I, I tend to make life quite difficult for myself. Like, you know, I could write thrillers, you know, psychological dramas. I could write, you know, contemporary murder mysteries. And I think that uh, I'd enjoy doing that. But there's just something in me that loves the process of I mean look going into going into the London library this 200 year old library I tweet about it in Instagram about it so I'm, I'm so passionate about that place already I've only been going there six months but to go there and to see the pictures of Conan Doyle on the wall and HG uh, um, Wells and uh, Virginia Woolf and know that they were writing books in that place too Bram Stoker wrote Dracula using the books from the London library it's just incredible you know but to go into that library, sit down, open my laptop and genuinely in my mind transport myself back in time is, is just a feeling of such um, complete, almost sexual pleasure that I would. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and that's the it's quote not, for the way. episode. <laughs> You're now okay. banned from the okay. British Library. <laughs> I'm going to be banned from the London Library. Yeah. The London Library, um... yeah. I'm going to get totally back. No, no, no. It's, it's, it, no, genuinely though, it's a wonderful thing because I, I, I am there genuinely. And it's incredible. I can, I turn up at half past nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. And then before I know it, the tannoy comes on and they're closing the library and seven hours have gone by. And, and I, I'm, honestly, sometimes I haven't even looked out of my laptop because I'm just, I'm there. You're engrossed. I love that. It's just, and like you say, to be sitting where such incredible authors have sat and you're you're joining them because the spirit engineer has done wonderfully as i say i thoroughly enjoyed it i was and immediately i was wickying all about your characters as i was reading i was like i want to know everything how did you come across this story where did you find it where did this idea come from i was a, a bbc newsreader in northern ireland and at the time and um i was watching a, a an hbo dramatization of houdini's life with adrian brody which i loved and it was i think only in the last episode really they then showed his transition from world famous uh, escapologist and ma magician to uh, debunker of uh, fake spiritual mediums and I just I, I didn't know that he had really given the larger part of his life to that, in fact. And so I went um, on the dreaded website that shall not be named and bought a book called A Magician Among the Spirits. 
uh, by Harry Houdini, which was his account. And I was reading it in the bath one night and um, on page 200 and something or other, um, he mentions um, a professor, William Jackson Crawford uh, from Belfast, who he met and he thought was completely mad. And he saw pictures of ectoplasm. And then uh, Houdini says in quite a typically Houdini-esque, abrupt uh, and obnoxious way, um, oh, and he killed himself anyway, and then moves on. Oh, um, I mean, <laughs> oh he, by the way. He says, you know, sadly, 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 or tragically, he killed himself. You can tell, you can tell that Houdini's writing it all with the deepest of eye rolls, frankly. Um, but I just found that it's so interesting. And I asked some of the historians that I knew in Northern Ireland about it, and none of them had heard a peep about this story. Um, and I'd always, always thought, one day I'm going to find an historical story that I can tell that people haven't heard before. And uh, when this story found me, because that is how I feel about it, uh, I, I just I was absolutely ecstatic, but at the same time terrified. Because I thought if I can't tell this story in, a, in novel form, then I'm not a novelist and my life stream is in tatters and actually I'm a sham. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure you know so it actually I think that's part of the reason why I spent you know a good couple of years I mean then I left the BBC um and ended up on Big Brother as you say and then all of the complete catastrophe that was my life for about a year and a bit after that I mean honestly complete and utter catastrophe but that was research and I spent that year uh researching this story and it was a, a place for me to go in my mind that felt safe and felt like it was the real me because during that process after reality tv i lost totally lost track of who i was and i was chasing this idea of celebrity well not even chasing it but people around me were kind of kind of telling me to chase it and how to chase it and i should chase it even though it was making me desperately sad and and i suddenly realized i was i was out for a drink actually with a good friend of mine andy who illustrated the novel and I said, you know what, I'm I'm a, I'm in such a similar position to William Jackson Crawford, this guy I'm researching. And I, I think when I realized that, I realized, OK, now I can write this book because it's the yes, it's the story of a guy who's debunking or testing or trying to prove the veracity of a spiritual medium named Kathleen Golliher. But it is, I think, for me, overall, what it really is, is about the deconstruction of a man's psychology where he begins as a rather pompous, aspirational man in a patriarchal world and actually turns into something quite monstrous. Mm. And I, I felt like I was going on that process myself. It's very much, point. you follow his journey and you can feel that the, the fame and the money and the power he's getting are not enough and it's just more and more and more until there's nothing really left of him. It's just become this search for for more of being known and and I really felt in the story I felt very sorry for Kathleen I have to say um and I, I did google I saw the photos of the the ectoplasm <laughs> um yes I'd really like to know who believed that that was ectoplasm for like a second I'm really curious who saw it yes that's definitely ghosts um but she I felt like she was quite used in the center of all this well, I, you know, I, I was nervous writing Kathleen because she's been the study of some uh, feminist academic study, 
that most certainly positions Kathleen as someone who was used and abused as a young woman with no agency from a working class fa uh, family. I, the more I got to know the story and also making contact with her family, and she has um, a wonderful relative, and if you go on my website, ajwestauthor.com, you can see the interviews uh, with Kathleen's granddaughter, so knew her in life. Wow. Um, she was a very unassuming woman, but she was very bright. And I think that Kathleen was um, a, a precocious girl stroke young woman who was far brighter than her circumstances allowed a young woman to be at that time in Belfast. Uh, we're talking here in the early 1900s. And I think in that situation, um, there were very few opportunities for you to sit with your social betters, as it were, and have control not just over yourself actually but but over them um and and it uh, it must have been quite an intoxicating and exciting thing for, you know away from the drudgery of what everyday life would have been she was a, a blouse cutter as were the rest of her family um so cutting endless identical strips of material probably wasn't very exciting that's a little her. dry doesn't it for a career choice <laughs> yeah very so the, the one mystery i'd say about kathleen though that uh, I, I initially thought was a problem and then I realized how helpful it was is that uh, unto her death she never spoke to her family her children or her grandchildren about this period in her life even on her deathbed she didn't she didn't say it's okay I know I'm going to a better place she didn't say oh by the way I was mates with uh, Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini wrote about me um, she you, you'd think you'd would even if you were quite an unassuming person you would she never mentioned it um, uh, even even a vague belief in in um, what we might call a standard faith, you know, Christianity or anything like that. It just wasn't part of anything she spoke about. She certainly never spoke about William Jackson Crawford. Um, the only scrap of her past that she did maintain to her death was she always called her house Nakoma, wherever she lived. And Nakoma, although I didn't use it in my books, it didn't fit. And I'm one of those terrible um uh, authors who who you know changes things to work with with his plot but uh, uh Nakoma was the name of her spirit guide and her spirit guide was a um a native american or uh, forgive me if that's not the right term but uh, she would have re uh, referred to him i think as an american indian uh, chief and um yeah Nakoma so i always i thought that was intriguing but it was useful for me as a novelist writing her character to i think finally get round to answering your question boris johnson style um is uh is uh, i'm just going to bumble through this whole interview by the way and not really say anything of any that's fine. gravity or, or circumstance i hope that's okay yeah that's fine um uh and i'm drink i'm eating some cheese with my wine here as well by the way but i think it's i think i'm allowed um uh i i loved writing kathleen in deliberately without myself deciding what her character was which sounds like the opposite of what you're supposed to do as a novelist you're meant to be very clear on who a character is but with kathleen i deliberately didn't because i thought actually no one person is always the same in every circumstance and for kathleen to have been successful as a medium she had to have been a mercuric mercurial ah. and unpredictable character do you know what i mean yeah it's I, really I felt like it worked yeah, I think, and you know, having spoken to you, it's very interesting because you see different sides of her and perhaps she saw it as an out, as you say, from this kind of dull life that she was leading, you know, a potential to, to aim for bigger things as well, which is really, really interesting. The question is now, what follows up from The Spirit Engineer? What are you working on next? 
Well, I don't want to go into too much detail because I've been told that there are some rapscallion-y authors out there who sometimes uh, like ideas and write them rather quickly. Oh, um, lordy, no, <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I've been warned by other authors, even like on tweets and things, stop saying quite so much about what you're working on. Um, I don't know who I don't know. I don't know who these nefarious individuals are. But uh, anyway, I've been told and also by my agent. So what can I say? I can say that it's I can say that it's uh, set in uh, 1700s London. It's based on um, some true accounts of a really fascinating and little told um, subculture within London at that time. And I think it's going to be it's I think it's either going to land really well for people or or it's it's going to be an unusual read I don't I'm I, you know I quite like the fact I'm nervous about it because yeah. I think you should be in a way if you're not nervous about the book you're writing then it's probably a bit too safe I I mm-hmm. I would probably I suggest love a book I quite that like writing stuff that's a bit different torn like if you've got people who land on either side of a fence on a story and they love it and they're like you know die by the sword for it or there's somebody who's like this is not for me I think it's those books that kind of just fall in the middle and you're like yeah right you know I want books that have people divided and I'm really intrigued by what you're mysteriously telling us well, I loved, yes, I loved, I mean, I loved that about um, The Spirit Engineer, but we were a little nervous when the book first came out and when people started reading on NetGalley because it's an anti-hero book, because William is not a character that you're necessarily expected to love. I personally think that we should have some sympathy for him, but he's not a lovable, likable, best-made character. And also at a time when um, historical fiction largely is coming from um, female authors writing often from a feminist point of view to um, I would argue my book is a, a feminist book actually um, in a, in only in the sense that it's exploring uh, historical toxic masculinity but only from a different angle from the angle of the toxic yeah. masculinity and, and trying to unpack and explore why we know that there are guys who behave badly. Why were why were they doing it? And what was the pressure that was causing them to become this way? Because mm-hmm. I, I like to think that uh, all human beings are inherently good. So so what what are the, some of the factors that led to this particular guy taking this particular route? And and that's what I found um, interesting. But it was a risk, you know, something mm-hmm. different. And um, I quite like it then when. I've seen reviews of, of uh, particularly younger women saying, oh, I had to throw my Kindle at the wall because I got so angry at William. I think, oh, good, I've done, I've done a really good job. That's the thing. <laughs> if you're setting out to write a character who is, you know, unlikable in many ways and people come back and like, oh, I kind of felt a bit sorry for, do you know what I mean? If people were kind of come back and like, oh, I thought he was all right. You want people to get cross at him when he does things that are pretty shady. Um, and I definitely felt pretty, pretty cross with him at points with all of them, I think, at one point or another. Well, you did say about Kathleen there, actually. I didn't I didn't fully address it. But when you were saying about uh, Kathleen being abused, I, I think you said or used. Yeah, um, that is absolutely true. There is also the case that uh, from my personal point of view, she was, um, to put it politely, fibbing about people's dead relatives to them for personal gain either financial or social and um that is at best a morally gray position <laughs> to be in yeah. um and 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 so so for me the, the book is that one of the questions with the book that I never answered myself and I wanted to pose to the reader is actually 
who is taking advantage of whom in this situation? Um, and, and actually, perhaps there's a little bit of both. All of the characters take some responsibility for the somewhat uh, uncomfortable and um, strange occurrences that take place in the latter part of the book. Mm, I love that. And I think, you know, to this day, you know, there are still mediums and there are seances and people believe very different things. And I think that question is still is still posed now with modern day, you know, tarot readers wow. and spiritualism churches and stuff. It's still it's still a question, I think, that hangs in the air. So uh, it's definitely got me thinking about that sort of side of things when I was reading it as well. It definitely got me thinking, you know, I don't know if I'd call myself a believer. I'm certainly not a disbeliever, but it's very interesting to see all different sides of the of the question, for sure. I, I've always said, um, I don't believe in ghosts, but I would love, love, love to see one. Because for me, it wouldn't just be a case of, oh, I've seen a ghost, now I can um, tell my friends a really spooky story uh, when I go <laughs> camping, you know, which would be good, that would be a bonus. But it would be, genuinely from the very core of my soul um I don't even believe I have a soul but I, I think that's it I would believe then that I had one you know I would believe then it, that um the people I've lost and loved are still there and I would believe that when I go they'll still be part of me here um enjoying this world this crazy world of ours in, in one way or another and that would be just such a massive relief I, I wish I wish I could believe I really do um, it would be it would be I think about my mortality every day. I worry about my death and the death of the people I love. And, and it would be an extraordinary thing. I, I kind of beg ghosts, please, will you appear to me? Please haunt me. I don't care if you're a poltergeist. You could be a little girl with netting over her face and cobwebs for eyes. I don't care what you are. You can be as ugly as sin. You can be scary as fuck. Just please terrify me. And at the same time, put my put my mind and my heart at ease that this isn't all there is but unfortunately I am yet to see anything that has made me think as such. So with your novel evening I'm really not sure what to expect with yours uh some people I can guess but I'm I'm not sure what you're gonna do I'm <laughs> my gosh yes no you shouldn't you should never know I don't know what uh is gonna happen normally on my evenings either. Mm. We just start and then see see where it goes. But uh, I have I have a couple of ideas. Will there be flat champagne at this party? <laughs> There'll be uh, no. There won't. There will be no champagne. There will be wine. Mm -hmm. There will be beer, mm -hmm. and there will be coffee, and there will be hot chocolate. Ooh. Okay. That's okay. A clue. That's a clue. Oh, it's a clue. Hmm. Okay. So Small we should beer. More beer. Okay. Yes. We should probably start then with where are we going? Where are you taking us for this this evening? We are going to London. <gasps> what a surprise! Doesn't sound very exciting, does it? <laughs> We're going to now, nah, but here's the thing: we're going to London in the year 1720. Ooh. So we're travelling back in time, and we're going to particularly into the world of Ned Ward's London, Georgian London. Um, at a time when the streets ran with uh, filth and doxies and one-legged soldiers 
uh, stray cats where the fleet ditch was still a bubbling turd pipe and the Thames uh, was flat and broad and raced furiously underneath the cataracts of old London Bridge, which was piled high like a cake with uh, topsy-turvy shops. Mm, and you said there was doxies, so I'm going to fit in just fine. So <laughs> I'll have found my people. Oh, yes, are you going to be? Are you going to be? Are you going to be a wench on my I arm? Think, I hope so. Yeah, I'll be a wench on your arm. Perfect. It was the role I was born to play. <laughs> good, good. I don't know quite what I'm going to be. Actually, I haven't thought about that. What am I going to be? I could be. Um, uh, what would be an interesting? Uh, I'll, I'll be. Um, I'll just be, I'll tell you what, I'll be like um, a milkman. A milkman? Okay. Because now that might not strike you as a particularly interesting job, but actually I've spent, I've spent the last while researching being a milkman ah. in, uh, in 1700s London. Would you believe? Yeah, I have. <laughs> and um, you had to get up very early in the morning and you go and do your milk round and then you go and sell your milk milk. And then you'd have kind of a bit of time off and then you do another milk round um, around lunchtime and then you'd have the rest of the day to yourself. I think that sounds quite nice. Perfect to go off wenching. That's exactly what you need. Perfect. I, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't so much go off wenching. Um, I would probably uh, go off uh, uh, he, he wenching. <laughs> he wenching. I would. I would <laughs> Yes. Oh, well, I go off mollying. I mean, that was a term. That's the term, the molly house. Yep. That was the that was the terminology, wasn't it? So I'll I'd be, be hanging straight, out. In I a... would, oh, I'd be straight off to Sodomite's Walk in Moorfields after I'd after I'd finished milking my cows, and I'd uh, I, I was going to say something really. You'd waste your there. wages, shall we say? You'd spend some of your hard-earned milk money. I would be. I would be very. I'd be a very adept milker of beasts. And uh, it would, and it would be, I'd be known in London. I would known in, I'd be known in London. You would, Certainly. I'd have no fear of that. I would hopefully not be riddled with French pox and I would be servicing only the finest clientele would be my plan. Yes, you have to be, well, you'd have to be very, very careful if you're having any, uh, any sexual um, dalliances with anyone in Anybody. London at, at, at that time, because my <laughs> gosh, it was it was absolutely pestilent, and the um, uh, treatments for syphilis and the like were uh, almost as horrific and ridiculous as the diseases themselves. I mean, you'd be drinking mercury uh, and, and and all sorts of other things that would would probably kill you faster than syphilis. Mm, so we get our lambskins, we'd take them take them ready, and we would be nice and safe in Georgian London. <laughs> Yes, we'd be, we'd be, yes, absolutely. We would, well, actually, it was also the time when um, Colonel Condom had just invented uh, ah. the first condom was at the same time, they'd, uh, made out of um, uh, pig's intestine. Um, previous to that, they were made of wood or uh, carved bone um, uh, and the like, and sometimes leather, Ooh, which I can't nice. imagine was, uh, I can't imagine it was um, particularly gratifying for the man or certainly <laughs> particularly... Um, comfortable for the woman but nobody uh, is enjoying the wooden condom i feel there's a reason that died a death <laughs> no i yeah i don't it's i mean i'm not i'm not a massive expert on heterosexual sex in the first place but uh, i would i would having spoken to my uh, female friends about such things i can't imagine that uh, as that an that would expert be very anyway uh, you know. we, we digress 
our, our evening our evening is not going i mean we might talk about such things but our evening is not going to be um um a bawdy house evening we're not gonna it's not a, an orgy okay it's we're we're going more um civilized for this evening okay well we wouldn't go that far okay well is our actual setting what are we heading to within this mad london town well, I was thinking we could walk from High Hoban along Field Lane, which is where Fagin lived in Oliver Twist. Um, it's a real Ooh. lane. Um, yeah, and uh, it's uh, it still exists. You can go to come to London. It's Field Lane is is still there. It's now a tiny little narrow, completely pointless um, path leading between two massive glass buildings, two corporate faceless buildings. Back in the day, it was genuinely um, known, infamous for being the absolute den of vice. I mean, real, just rotten with, nice. um, you know, rotten with uh, every vice you can imagine lived there. And so that's why Dickens uh, stuck Fagin and poor Oliver in, in that situation. But it's actually, um, it's an area that comes up. And this is our tour guide for our evening, because we're going to start in High Hoven. We're going to walk through London before we get for our dinner. I hope that's OK. Perfect. Um, we're going to go via the Tower of London, and this is where our guest, uh, without a guide, I should say, Ned Ward. Ah. I've, been, I've been reading Ned Ward's A London Spy, which I can't, uh, I just can't recommend it highly enough if you if you love your history, because it's basically a, a very wry um, take on uh, a kind of tour a tour around London at the time when Ned Ward, who was a real guy, lived. And he's pretending that he's this country bumpkin who's come into London and he's very naive about everything. But actually, he was a victualler. He owned um, an alehouse called the King's Head Tavern, which uh, I, I found actually on my map from the same oh, time. Wow. So I know exactly where it was. Yeah, it, it's, it's written into a map that I have. And, um, but because he was a bit of a naughty boy, I think for it to be published and for him not to get into trouble with the authorities, he had to pretend that he was outraged by everything. So he's basically just walking around London um, to Covent Garden, which was, you know, where people, where culls would go and try and pick up their yep. uh, doxies. And he, he then he, go, he goes to these um, alehouses and he gets into all sorts of trouble, um, witnessing and experiencing the underbelly of London life. And uh, he just pretends to be outraged by it all. But you can tell he's just having a whale of a time. But like, anyway, I thought we'd walk past uh, the Tower of London and go and see the lions. Okay. Yeah. Um, and can I can I read you a little bit from, yeah. from his account? Because I, I love it. This go is on. what I mean by time travel. He says, accordingly, so this is us. Accordingly, we went in where the yard smelt as frowsily as a dove house or a dog kennel. In their separate apartments were four of their stern affrighting cat ships, one with a whelp presented to his late majesty, so these are lions, of which the dam was as fond as an old maid when married is of her first child. One couchon, another dormant, a third passant garde, a fourth very fierce with rampant being a lioness. He's also a massive misogynist, being a lioness, and was so angry, but he does it, do you know he does it with charm? He's a very charming misogynist. He's quite misogynist. Funny it's kind of like, you know, that kind of uh, the, the, the jiggery pokery between men and women that we've had through the ages, you know, and was so angry when we spoke to her, she put out her paw to me, which was tipped with such ill-favoured sort of pruning hooks that rather than she should have taken me by the hand, I would have chosen to have taken old Nick, the devil, by his cloven foot and should have thought myself in less danger. So 
that's just a little and you know he writes in another bit as well that they go to uh, West, Westminster Abbey and see a waxwork of uh, uh, King Charles and um, it's still there oh, if you wow. go to Westminster Abbey Museum the waxwork that he describes in this book is exactly as he describes it and it's still in Westminster Abbey isn't that extraordinary and this was That's in 1700 that you're actually seeing what he saw is is just well, I, amazing we go into you go into the Tower of London now and of course sadly they don't have uh, well not not sadly actually because I'm not a big fan of zoos but anyway they don't <laughs> have uh, they don't have lions in there anymore and eagles and owls and and um uh Cata, Cata Mountains, as they called pumas at the time, uh, which um, they believed that it, their eyes could see into your heart and show you how you were going to die, um, which I love. Um, they don't have that anymore. But, you know, the fact that you can go into the Tower of London and stand in the same place that Ned Ward stood, and he's this tourist going around going, oh, I'm a bit hungry, actually. I'm a bit tired, and there's too many people, and there's so many... He's always moaning about bloody tourists. Like he takes the mickey out of tourists wandering around, looking up and getting lost and bumping into people and standing in his way the whole time. And I, I'm just that kind of grump when I'm wandering around London. It's basically, um, yeah, that's, but I have very rarely ventured into London, uh, being a country pumpkin myself. Um, and I very much feel that way whenever I go into London. That's pretty much how I feel about the whole situation. Oh, sure. If you're in, if you're in London as a tourist and you're um, in the way and someone tucks at you, it's probably me. You've got it down. That's, that's, You've got the touch. That's my down. vibe. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Anyway, so we've seen the lines at the Tower of London. Now we're going to wander. I've got my map here, so I know exactly. We're going to wander along uh, Thames Street. Um, or actually, do you want to take a wherry boat? We could take a wherry boat. Yeah, we could take a wherry boat. Okay, we're going to take a wherry boat from. That's actually how uh, I say worry as well. When you said that, that really threw me because I have a funny accent. I say worry instead of worry <laughs> well you should worry about the worry boat worry because, about the worry boat <laughs> because uh because uh it's no small feat going um towards london bridge because it's bloody dangerous um they have two massive wooden water wheels on the bridge that help to power things um on the bridge and just off the side of it as well um, and they're always turning and churning and people have died being cut to pieces in there fabulous and, um, because the struts of uh, old London Bridge are so close together, it creates. Why are you laughing? This is. This is is it's not the most serious. fun evening I've been invited out of. We've got syphilitic whores and dangerous bridges, but okay, I'm living for the danger. Yeah, it's very. The lions are dangerous too, by the way, the in lions, the tower. Yes. Like people, they've <laughs> I'm been less known to pull people them. through the bars and eat them. So we've we've probably seen that too. Someone's been pulled through the bars and eaten them. This Fabulous. Is, by the time we get to this dinner, we're going to need that flat champagne. Um, so, um, or mead rather, or whatever. Anyway, the point is, what I'm trying to get to the point here I'm, is that between the legs of the bridge is so um, uh, uh, close together that you have rapids between them. So if we get too close to the bridge, then the, the boat might be smashed Perfect. to smithereens. So we're going to take a boat anyway from Custom House Stairs, and then we're going to get off... I mean, really, the worryman's going to be quite annoyed by this. You know, when you get a taxi, and you just want to go up the road and they don't want to do it and they just roll their eyes. It's definitely yeah. one of those situations. <laughs> we're going to get off at Billingsgate stairs, which is only one stairs along. Um, but we're doing it for the experience, you see. That's that's what the we're doing. But we're not doing it for the experience is what we're here for. Um, but we're just going to do it for like a brief moment. And 
while we're on this boat, by the way, as we're sculling, sculling along the Thames with, with Pooh floating by quite okay. close, um, it's, not a pretty, it's not a pretty river, but we can see, we can see the sun's just starting to dim uh, behind the dome of the newly built, newly capped off St Paul's Cathedral. Um, we can hear people shouting horrible abuse. You, you fat, mundunging, noddle-headed goat fucker. And you might be a bit surprised by that, but actually that is a London um, tradition that went on for hundreds of years and is completely forgotten now. And it's known as river wit because oh. the river was river. The river was like the tube is today. It was the, it was the quickest way to get from one part of London to another um, or one end of London to the other anyway. Um, river wit was where boat passengers of all, you know, um, different statuses and, and, um, uh, sensibilities would shout the most foul abuse they could possibly dream up at each other from boat to boat and because you're on the river in a boat you weren't you wouldn't take offense and you're allowed to be as offensive as you possibly wanted um Ooh. and I love that I think that's hilarious it's almost that sounds like, like a bit of me actually I would quite like to be able to be as offensive as I possibly could to random passers-by with zero you know yeah, exactly it's 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 like um I don't know. It's, I feel as though it's something that actually is missing in modern society today is the ability to actually just let free some of your most vile uh, inner thoughts and just say them out loud. And then when you're back then on dry land, you think, oh, I've got that out of my system and you can, you can be a nice person again. You know? I think we all need a bit of that to be fair. That's probably me when I drive. That's pretty much my like driving style. <laughs> it's to just spew yes. force venom as I'm driving around. And then I feel much better once I get to the end. Yes, I did do a bit of that when I went on my UK tour. I realised when I was driving out of London and then driving all around the UK from you know Belfast, Wales, Scotland, North of England, all the way down, um, people are really angry in their cars right now. I mean, I haven't, I haven't driven for a long time in London. I, I kind of walk everywhere. But people were so angry. Anyway, we digress. Um, so we're going to get off now at Billingsgate Stairs. And we're going to walk along um, the wharf and then we're going to go under the arch of St Magnus Church which is still there and the arch is still there. Now it doesn't lead to anything but some trees and then the side of the river, the embankment, um, uh, which uh, your listeners will know was built by uh, Bazalgette to solve yeah. the, the big stink, the great stink. Yeah. Um, in St. Magnus Church, they have uh, an amazing, these days, they have an amazing to scale model of Old London Bridge and what it looked like. And I would suggest to your listeners, if they're interested, they should go and see it because it's it's brilliant. But so Magnus I want to go there. and see it. Like I want to go and go and see it. Come to and London, I will show you. I, yeah, I honestly, I'd love to. I, I, I love, I'm such a kid. I put my face down at the level of the model and imagine I'm walking along it. And when I've written chapters, I've written two chapters so far that take place on that bridge. I've always wanted to go on Old London Bridge. Oh. And, um, uh, I, I, I went to look at this model and it allowed me to get a sense of the space and how tall and spindly and um, precarious those buildings yeah. must have looked. Was it um, like the shops? Am I right in thinking that it would have had shops and cellars and stuff all along it as well? Or am I making that up in my head? Yes, it had. I mean, it changed over the years, even when it was old London Bridge. So there used to be um, a kind of drawbridge halfway across it to let the larger ships through. Um, then that was taken out. There was a chapel on the middle of it. So there's a proper full, very grand stone church 
halfway across this bridge. And originally they were shops. Then they became shops and obviously homes because people lived um, above their shops. Yeah. And they, they, got, they got taller and taller. And then also they got they, they started leaning out over the river rather precariously on these struts. Oh, God. Um, on these. Yeah. On these um, on these brackets that that then hung these whole houses and shops that were some of them were four or five, six stories high over the over the edge of the river that as i say was crashing i mean it must have been quite a noisy place to live yeah. i think um with the with the water honestly just especially when the, the tides were changing just um ferocious roar i mean it's described in ned ward's book a number of times as a roar as loud as the lions um at the at the tower so it must be a very noisy place to live. That's where we're having dinner. So we're going to have our dinner um, basically slung over a river rapids um, that's a bit stinky um, in the middle of in the middle of a bridge above, I think, a glove shop. Why not? And I would treat myself to some nice some nice uh, gloves while we were there, probably because I wouldn't yeah. want to touch anything <laughs> in the. Well, you wouldn't want to touch much, no. No. Okay, so we are above <laughs> above the glove shop, and I'm assuming some guests are joining us. It's not just you and me on a on a dinner date for two. Uh, I imagine we'll invite some people. Yes, I have I have a few people that I would like to invite. Okay, okay. these can these don't have to be people just from the time, do they? We can take them no. Our time I mean, if we're going in time, they can be fictional. They can be real. You can go wild. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, I think since he's our since he's our tour guide, it would be rude not to invite Ned Ward, hmm. he of a London spy. I would like to invite him also because actually, he seems like rather a um, a, a jolly, cheeky, uh, interesting fellow um, who clearly has a very good fixing on the underworld of London at that time. So he'll know he'll he'll know a few tricks to make sure that we have a good night and we keep ourselves safe. Yes, um, that seems wise. I think this is the environment we need, <laughs> a guide who knows what he's doing. Yes, exactly. So Ned Ward's going to be there 100%. And then I thought it'd be nice to in uh, invite Samuel Johnson because he's a man I have a lot of respect for. Um, he was the, he wrote the first real um, uh, English dictionary. Um, uh, that's what he's famous for. But he was a really fascinating man. You know, he came from nothing. His father lost all their money um they owned a bookshop but they lost all their money on the print works and samuel did not get to go to the posh universities did not have a you know rich benefactor he walked with a friend um which is another story but anyway he walked all the way to london um and really from very little virtually nothing and just through his charm and the fact that people liked him and that he was intelligent and creative made a career for himself and then won a commission to write this English dictionary and it took him a lot longer than he thought it would um but he was an incredibly generous man he took people in rent free into his house even though he didn't have much money himself he had a um a a, a black guy who lived with him who oh my gosh it's so I'm terrible with names I always forget everyone's name forgive me but he had a friend um, who he uh, uh, lived with there, and that was um, it was 
it was quite a striking thing to do at that time, actually, you know, um, they were mates and uh, helped each other out and yeah, were just good friends. And he also took in um, uh, women sex workers uh, from the streets and allowed them to live in his house and became friends with them and just looked after them and made sure that they were safe and happy. And um, I just think he's, I just think he's a fabulous character. And he also had um, Tourette's, uh, it seems almost certain. Wow. That would be, um, and he's going to add to all the shouting and yelling that's going on uh, around us. It's going to be, it's going to be quite, I think it's going to be quite an uproarious night, but that's what I wanted. I thought, let's not have peaceful piano music. Let's have Samuel Johnson with Tourette's. Ned Ward will be shouting whatever opinions he has about um, uh, pretty much anything, because that's basically <laughs> what his book is. Then we're going to have Thomas Hardy, who is my favourite novelist of all time. Um, and I just I just think his writing is beautiful and it makes me um, smile and cry um, just happy sad tears and his story as an author I really resonate with he fought so hard to get published he wrote long and beautiful novels that he was told were going to be published and then they weren't and yet he still kept writing and still believed in himself and he went from someone who was really just not respected or valued at all to by the end of his life having a state funeral and I, and I just think, you know, if that's not an inspiration to any writer, I don't know what is, that at the start of your career, even when everyone is telling you, this is rubbish, this is boring, this is no good, that actually by the end of your career, you can, you can be a, a real superstar. Um, I, I, uh, I, I just think is brilliant. He, so I grew up in Hardy country. Um, I was yeah. born in Dorchester. Um, so visiting Max Gate was very much a thing we just did at the weekends. And I grew up in Bridport, which is Port Breedy. Um, and we grew up in his, and I have to be honest, I had not read any Hardy until about two years ago. Um, probably because I was very obnoxious as a teenager and was like, why would I want to read? But now it's, he writes so beautifully and he really was ahead of his time in terms of writing women as well and women's issues. And um, yeah, I think... I would love to meet him uh, as a as a Dorset boy. That is, you know, it's pretty much what we've got going for us in terms <laughs> of fame down in Dorset. We have Ardy, and um, we really milk that for all it's worth. Um, so I'd be very exciting to tell him, you know, what an impact he's had on the whole area, really. Yeah, I I, I think the way he writes about love, but also about um, grieving and about frustrated. Uh, aspiration and I, I oh, just so my I get I just think it's wonderful I, I read his uh, I read Judy Obscure at, um, when I was at uni studying on uh, pretending to study English lit because I, I wasn't really that interested to be honest um but I I Judy Obscure wasn't even a book I was supposed to be reading I was meant to be reading some other nonsense um and uh but I read that instead and I didn't go to my lectures or seminars for like two weeks I just kind of read this book and loved it and um I feel like that was probably the best use of my time frankly because it stayed with me that story I'm a very slow reader I'm a ponderous reader if I if I read something I love you know a particular description of a feeling or an emotion of um a landscape then I, I I then go back and I read it many many more times until I feel as though I've committed it to memory and I've understood what the writer has done with little funny squiggles on a page that has made my mind have such an extraordinary reaction um I've tried to and I try my best with my books I was sat yesterday in the library desperately trying to do that actually with a particular scene that's really important to the new book and uh, the little squiggly lines on the page just weren't, I just, I just didn't have faith 
I think one of the things as a writer is you have to have faith that actually you don't have to say very much to conjure images in the reader's mind. And if there's if there's one thing that I'm struggling with a little bit with the new book, because it's set in the 1700s and it's written in, I suppose, what I'd loosely describe as a kind of Georgian literary style is that it's quite verbose and they don't like to actually leave anything to chance. It's like I'm going to literally describe every single thing. Uh, about this. Uh, That's why I struggle with graphics. Yeah, if they can use 10 words to describe a tree, they'll use like 70. Oh, absolutely. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's, I mean, Dickens is, is you know, one of the, the worst offenders, but then when he gets it right, and my God, he, he so often does, uh, it's it's actually stunning. I mean, it's absolutely stunning when when he when he gets it right. And then sometimes you're like, oh, come on, mate. I was, I was listening to um, the audio book of... Uh, um the count of monte cristo uh, <laughs> by alexander dumas and uh there's a little bit of that there i was like I'm sure this isn't the plot anymore i'm sure i'm sure we've just gone shopping like what is <laughs> what is this is like another novel inside this novel and then yeah. another novel inside that novel inside the novel um but of course they weren't they weren't the editors i don't think then I, i'm sure if uh, i'm sure if alexander had sent his manuscript to uh uh, to Double Day or Penguin or something, they would have said, "This is great, but let's cut out the four hundred thousand words in the middle." <laughs> Literally, do, like I, what was it we read the other day? North and South uh, by Elizabeth Gaskell, and there's like a whole page about moving house, and I was like. Like we've literally got what furniture they're packing away, how many boxes they have, how they've wrapped the china. I was like, do we need? See, if I was an air traffic, do we need to fully describe the entire moving process from start to finish, or can they just move? We don't. We don't. But also, I feel like we're lucky to have it. I think. Well, how how much how much wonderful writing has been lost to the fact that we are so obsessed with it being no more than ninety to one hundred thousand words these days? I, I, you know, I, the chapters that I cut out of the Spirit Engineer, they didn't need to be there, but I think it would have been nice if they were. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I find that I find it would be interesting to talk to Thomas Hardy or, or one of the older writers or Samuel Johnson actually about what they thought about modern fiction would be really really interesting mm -hmm. to get them to maybe this is a book club we're going to maybe thomas yeah. hardy samuel johnson and ned ward and and the rest of my guests i'm yet to announce have all read a book what have they read sally rooney or something i don't know god yeah Com conversations with friends <laughs> yeah like like what's the biggest contemporary novel i mean i i don't know but i'm trying to uh, think of one that yeah. hasn't got any speech marks or <laughs> any punctuation or anything in it and just watch them puzzle over it for an hour something high something very highbrow yeah. yes well anyway <laughs> um it would be it would be I, I genuinely find that interesting i've also invited um charles dickens sorry about that because i get the feeling you're not a massive fan so you're just gonna have to keep your lips tight on that because he's probably gonna be quite offended I won't mention, I just won't mention his work. I would just flirt with him. That's the only way I could think to direct attention away from him asking me any questions. It probably would fail, but. He was a very, um, he was a very sprightly performer was Charles Dickens. I mean, aside from being, uh, I, I personally believe a, a genius, um, a literary genius, he was also a, a great performer and he was, he was more respected, I think, by his peers for his ability to tell stories, um, to orate. You know, uh, he was he had a very mobile, animate face, apparently, and spoke very much with his hands and with his whole body. Oh. And he did wonderful voices and characterizations. And he would almost the way Conan Doyle described Sherlock Holmes becoming uh, his characters 
and uh, his his um, you know become becoming the characters he was disguising himself in. I think Charles Dickens was like that. He would really he would oh. become uh, the different people he was he was trying to emulate in his stories, and he used to perform in front of the mirror while he wrote. So, and I well, maybe I try we and... convince him to do a little little performing for us. Well, can you? I mean, literally, can you imagine? We've walked from Field Lane. Where, where Charles Dickens set Oliver Twist. Don't forget that for Charles Dickens, this is him going back in time, the equivalent to us going back to, I don't know, the very early 1900s or the late 1800s. Yeah. So for him, he's gone back in time too. So he'd be fascinated by this whole journey we've been on. Um, but wouldn't it be amazing to, to, to listen to Charles Dickens reading Oliver Twist or- oh, I wanna um, hear him do Fagin. Can you imagine getting him to become oh. Fagin? Well, we might have to cancel him, Danny, because it would probably be a little bit anti-Semitic. But um, probably a little bit, yes. Yeah. But we're not going to cancel Dickens. We're going to. We're just going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, he did good and bad. I, he's on the verge of being cancelled at the moment, Dickens, isn't he? Because he, he was. He was. He was absolutely horrific to his wife, wasn't he? But, oh, uh, I was not aware of this. I. It yes, doesn't really surprise me. Uh, it doesn't massively surprise me. Um, of the time, to be honest with you. I'm not sure wives were held in the greatest of esteem um, within marriages. Yeah, I think I could have a word. I would have a, a strong word. Take him to one side and say, mate, you just, you know, this is not gonna play well in a few years time. And also for the sake of the, the woman in your life, maybe just don't uh, emotionally torture her quite so much. Um, you stop that. And if you won't agree, we'll just, I'll just yeet him into the Thames. Well, I tell you, yes, they would just push him out the window. Um, it's only Charles Dickens, who cares? We'll push Shakespeare out while we're at it. Um, saving saving many, many school pupils um, a great deal of uh, yawning. Um, I'll tell you who'd be really good, who can massively help you with that conversation with Dickens, is our next guest, and that's Patricia Cornwell. Um, uh, internationally amazing and famous uh, crime fiction novelist of our day, who... Um, really invented the whole CSI thing yeah. in fiction. Um, that was, that was, you know, that was her. She sold God knows how many millions and tens of millions of novels worldwide. And is for me, not just an inspiration because my mum used to read uh, her books. And I remember growing up seeing her books on the shelves in my home, but also because I'm very proud and very lucky to say that I can name drop her as a mentor. She, she is now, a mentor to me personally we we speak on the phone we share emails she um behind the scenes she's a massive support and guide to me and has given me a lot of advice behind the scenes only because i took a picture next to the agatha christie statue on the outskirts of soho tweeted it for whatever reason the twitter algorithm showed it to her she liked it uh we followed each other we dm'd and before I knew it, I was in a pub in Kennington DMing Patricia Cornwell. Isn't that insane? That's it. That's, I remember my mum had, oh my God, which one is it? I can picture it now. My mum had the biggest hardback. And I remember being half scared of it as a kid because it looked really intimidating and a bit frightening on the cover. Um, and I recently read it. Oh my God, the name has gone. But like that is, she's literally on that level, isn't she? Of like, everybody has seen her books. Everybody knows somebody who absolutely adores her books. And her books will just keep getting bought and keep being read. And like you say, they really kicked off the, you know, the real 
crime thrillers you know the kind of the, like you say the forensic the csi the real kind of not just like the murder mysteries i oh that's a, that's amazing it's it's um i pinch myself i i think it's and you know what's really great about it is that um she also has a fascination with the jack the ripper mystery and um has amassed her own uh, uh archive of uh, material from the Jack the Ripper case and is certain herself that it was a, a British painter called Walter Sickert, um, who's a very famous and well-respected ah. establishment artist. And so it's quite controversial with the British art establishment that she should make such a suggestion. However, there is quite, a, there, I mean, I have to say, there is there is some quite compelling uh, evidence that um, if, if it wasn't him, then he certainly wanted people to think it might be. I think you can oh. certainly go that far. But she she owns some of his paintings, which I mean, are worth a lot of money. But more importantly, she has uh, uh, truncheons and knives and um, handcuffs and uh, bit scraps of material. And she owns uh, one of the Jack the Ripper letters um, and she's got it all in her archive and she's allowed me to look at it, which is amazing because it's private. Um, so, so you know, she's a real history, she's a history nerd and a, a research nerd. And what we've spoken about and what we'll talk about over our dinner, I think, uh, is the joy of research. Uh, I think so many writers talk about research as a chore, but I think for me, and I know Patricia has said the same thing, is that what, what an amazing opportunity to just go and find things out. I'm obsessed. I'm so into true crime. Um, I'm an absolute true crime buff. That's kind of like my love alongside reading. Uh, I'm obsessed. And now you told me she has that. I'm like, well, that's all I'd be asking her about all night. I'd literally be like, I want to hear about everything. That is so cool. Well, yeah, I mean, she she wrote about um, uh, corpses being dissected um, and she was able to write about that in a way that people hadn't before. Why? Because she worked in a thingamajig for two years. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, she worked in a, a mortuary. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For, for, you know, two, two, two and I think two and a half years. Um, and was a journalist. And so she knows about that side of things. Um, she's, she's someone who, if she's written about something in the crime world or in, in any world, then she's done it. I mean, for Christ's sakes, she wanted to write about flying in a helicopter, so she learned to fly a helicopter. I mean, she's like, she's the absolute action hero of literature. And um, I, I think, I think, frustratingly, she doesn't always quite get the due that she deserves, I think, actually, for what she managed to do for, for the literary scene, and for particularly for crime fiction, yeah. that she, she gave it an authenticity and a grittiness and a reality that simply did not exist before. Yeah. And I think as well, she made it incredibly marketable. People were buying it. You know, people were buying these. And I know for a long time with crime, there was kind of a bit of a, you know, it's not very seemly to be reading about, you know, autopsies and to be reading about gory scenes. And I think in a way that, you know, erotica has recently taken a bit of a thing of being mainstream and being something you can just pick up and read over your cream bun in the mornings. She kind of did that for, for crime novels as well. You know, women like my mum were in their houses, you know, and were buying buying these books, which I think is so cool. So I, I that's an awesome guest. I am very, uh, that's a good one. 
I had one more. I mean, I feel as though I've just, this has been going on forever. It's like the Oscars or something like, <laughs> like we've done enough now. But I, I had to just, I had to invite Walter Sickert only because Patricia Cornwell is there. And I feel, I do feel, and I've said this to her, I feel as though I owe her a debt. And actually there is, it's, you know, there are some people in your life you just you can never repay that debt you know for a lot of people it might be their mom or you know or the dad or whoever it is like Patricia Cornwell I, I, there's nothing there's nothing that woman needs from me but if I could give her one gift that I know would be the most extraordinary thing then uh to to actually allow her to I don't think she'd want to spend very much time with Walter Sickert to be honest but um to allow her to give him a good grilling in real life would be a fascinating thing to watch how, I don't know, how safe would I be as well? <laughs> I'm just like, mm, maybe I'll take a little walk at that point. <laughs> I think, I think with, I think, well, I would say, I think with Charles, Thomas, Samuel, Ned uh, and Mina, I've just realised it's a bit of a sausage party, isn't it? But, um, <laughs> but I think with us, I would say, with, I would say with us there, uh, you'll be safe. But actually, come to think of it, I think with Patricia there, you'll be safe because she's definitely the most fearsome of all the guests. And she'll turn up definitely, she will turn up in some sort of um, 1700s version of a speedboat and fly across the rapids of the Thames and just kind of land off some sort of kind of Mission Impossible style winch <laughs> at the table. I love it. I love it. And you know what? Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of this, because actually, I think your evening has been one of the deepest dives um, that we've had. And that's actually been really lovely because I think you've given me some real insights as to why you've chosen things. It's been very vivid. It's a really unusual evening. I have to say we've not had anything like it uh, <laughs> for sure. And I, I approve. I very much approve. And you delved a little bit into a little bit of nonfiction. So you told me your current read is a nonfiction book. So tell me more. What are you currently reading? Uh, I'm reading a book called uh, The Journal of a Georgian Gentleman, uh, The Life and Times of Richard Hall, which is 1729 to 1801. I got this in a bookshop on my tour um, in Derbyshire. And it just um, it's just another book that allows me to try and put myself in the mind of um, someone who was living at that particular time. And, and that's what I enjoy. I, I get books, uh, I get novels sometimes to read, to give like um, little quotes for and things. But I'm not uh, at the moment, I'm not reading fiction very much. I've got to say I, I'm writing fiction and when I'm writing fiction, I don't like to read it. No, a few people have said that a few people have said that when they're writing, they prefer not to not to dive into fiction, um, which I can kind of get. I can understand that. Um, and I love a bit of nonfiction. Let's say true crime is my is my jam primarily, but I do like a bit of a uh, bit of history every now and again. So uh yeah. Do you think do you think the guy in the staircase did it? Yeah, 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent I don't I'm believe worried. anything he says. Have you watched the documentary? Oh, have I watched it? Yeah, I've watched the documentary. Yeah. I've listened to the podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I really, I, yeah, I just do not believe him whatsoever um, at all. There's something about him. And also he just, he loves it, doesn't he? He loves the limelight. You get, that's the overriding sense of it, isn't it? Yeah, that he just actually quite enjoys the opportunity to be, uh, well, famous. I mean, yes, he is famous. Colin Firth uh, is playing him, like, <laughs> which I think is very ridiculous. well. I have to say, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. I watched it. I think um, 
uh, it's uh, Occam's razor, isn't it? That yeah. it, when people come up with more and more complex explanations for something, actually the simplest explanation is is, is pretty much always the uh, the answer. And I think that uh, I would apply Occam's razor to uh, to that particular case. But I love true crime as well. I, I find uh, I find it quite thrilling. The the um, the best one I saw, what the best one I've ever seen is called Evil Genius on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Insane. Crazy. Insane. Like, how is that not the most famous of all of them? I, I just do not know. But um, it is ever a frustration of mine that the things that I think are best tend to do worse. Um, yeah. And Netflix are, they're really killing it with true crime documentaries. The Night Stalker one was incredible. Yes. The one about John Wayne Gacy, I've just watched. Um, and I was really emotional. I had a real cry at the end of it. Um, I've not watched that one yet. Oh, it's, it's very well done. And the ending where they show, obviously, all of his very young male victims was incredibly, and lots of photos I'd never seen more sort of ordinary rather than the kind of the style that you see go out on the missing posters more kind of pictures of them with their family or when they were little boys or at school with friends um and it was very moving really moving so I highly recommend that one and now when we actually meet in July I'm going to grill you on some of this I can't wait I'm so excited so the book party is is the book party yes Uh, so the book party um arrived with a bang in October of last year when I had my book launch for the spirit engineer at Waterstones Piccadilly and that was kind of in the balance for various different reasons Waterstones obviously was being very cautious around Covid and restrictions and things and but I knew that I just needed to say a big thank you to the book bloggers who've been so supportive of my novel it was a small publisher the marketing spend was you know enough to post a second class letter and so um I I uh, without the without the blogging community I, I just and, and fellow authors I I just wouldn't have got as, as far as I did with the book and I felt like I wanted to say thank you for that so we had a party and I didn't I, I thought it's not going to be a highbrow festival because there's no point pretending I'm highbrow so let's just have a good old shindig and so that's what it was last October in London and uh, when it came to January uh, my very good friend and business partner stroke publicist um, uh, Victoria Hyde who runs she did ask me. she did ask me for us to make this a lot more about her so I'm glad that she got a name drop because she did say could you could you refer to me as often as possible? So she's told me off before for not referring to her. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, but she does deserve to be referred to. So I, I don't mind at all. She, you know, she without without <laughs> Victoria, I, I, I would have I just simply would not be um, um, as successful as, as I've managed to be with this first book. Uh, which is, you know, far from a Sunday Times number one bestseller. I'm not a million selling novelist and uh, I'm yet to buy a castle. But um, it's done very, very nicely. And I think that's largely because of Victoria and the way she's been able to introduce me to so many amazing bloggers, such as yourself as well. I mean, I didn't Um, get an invite to the last party, but I'm not bitter, so I won't, you know, mention it again. The book book party... (laughs) uh the book party is you should have had an invite and i'm sorry about that 
that the uh, this is like Ellen DeGeneres that interview with that actress it was really awkward where she <laughs> pretended she invited her to a birthday. actually I did invite you I did invite you I did invite you um no the book party you don't need to be invited you no. you absolutely it's one of the rare it's a party where you can absolutely invite yourself to in fact you're 100% encouraged to do so um and it is about it's not a book festival book festivals are great but the one thing about book festivals I find is that it, it tends to put the readers on one side of the room and the authors on the other. Um, and that you queue up and you get your book signed and you might go to a Q&A where you're sat in the audience and the authors are sitting on comfy squidgy chairs talking about, are you a punster or a, um, what's the term? Are you a, a planner or a punster? Or, yeah. you know, generally quite, quite similar questions. And um and there's this distance between readers and writers. And actually, I think we've moved beyond that now, that actually um, a, a blogger who shares their passion for writing or any reader who shares their passion for writing is as important to the author as the author is to the reader. Um, and the book party is about recognising that and encouraging people, I think, to share the same space in a really informal way, enjoy each other's company. It was amazing last October to see uh, it was Annie Garthwaite who, who, who wrote the brilliant book Cecily. Um, met two of her readers who were huge fans of that book, and they all burst into floods of happy tears because Annie, uh, you know, because they were excited to meet Annie. But also Annie hadn't, as an author, hadn't actually connected with readers in that informal, natural, friendly way. Um, and it was quite something to behold, actually. And all of the authors who came and all of the bloggers who came said it was great. So when it came to January, uh, Victoria and I spoke and we said it's going to be an awful lot of work and planning. And it certainly has proven to be so far. But uh, we, we must do it. So it's um, July the... 16th um I, I pause because my my paperback is coming out I think on July 21st I get the two confused July the 16th in London don't worry because the Elizabeth, the Elizabeth line will be open then so it'll be very easy to get to uh, just by Tottenham Court Road um tickets are available and really you know whether you're a blogger a reader uh, an aspiring author a published author um you're, you're so welcome to come along um, it would be lovely and what, what a way to make new friends and meet people that you've maybe only spoken to on, online before. I am incredibly excited. I have got a hotel. I am child free. I'm going to travel up to London all by myself, which I have never done before. Um, I might cry in one of the tube stations and maybe get lost, but it'll be worth it. Uh, I'm going to get dressed up. And I literally, I cannot wait. I'm so excited to meet Bethany Clift. I recorded with, um, she is just fabulous yourself obviously um Katrina Ward as well which is just madness I'm very excited I mean just so much you've got so many amazing Janice Hallett's, Janice Hallett's there oh. I mean she's a rock star I mean, she really is a rock star in person I've, I've met her yeah. a couple of times and talked Peter to her Baker and she's like, as well I cannot wait she is hilarious like just Tina Baker is just great and she's so she's so warm so friendly such a um just such humility and but also such fun I mean she just she was there in October and she was doing Agadu on stage and uh, just had everyone she was on. dancing she was the like entertainment correspondent and I want to say on like GMTV or something when yeah. I was a kid and for me I can literally remember my mum watching that and as soon as I saw her I was like that's probably what's getting me most starstruck because I remember being like eight years old and sorry Tina um, <laughs> and 
like watching her on television, which is just, I've invited so many people as well. Um, that I some of whom I haven't met in real life, some of whom I have, um, and we're all very, very excited. That's the, I mean, I think that's the nicest thing actually is, um, you know, it's authors meeting other authors in a way that, you know, I, I, I go to uh, book launches and things these days. I'm, I'm lucky enough to get invited to a few. And when I go, there is an element of, um, I'm terrible. I just, I just open my mouth after one glass of Prosecco and God only knows what shit's going to come out. But um, <laughs> as, as this, I'm glad uh, you put that disclaimer in. <laughs> As this podcast can attest but uh but you're meant to be i think you're meant to be quite sensible and quite polite at such events you know it's all quite um you know chinos and floaty dresses and everyone's kind of being very very polite to each other but um you know the book party is certainly not about being impolite but it is about um just letting your hair down a bit and, and just relaxing and just accepting that we're all just actually people in this a ridiculous spinning top of a planet um, trying to make sense of it and trying to pretend we're adults and um, very excited to either be published or to enjoy books and that actually is a wonderful thing after two years of lockdowns and with everything in the world right now a lot of which could make us feel very stressed and unhappy if we if we dwelt on it um, more than we should do you know the book party is just a chance to have clean simple happy joy and and um yeah i just if, if anyone's listening and they'd like to join us they'd be very very welcome absolutely and i am very very excited i can't wait to meet you in person um i'm sure we're gonna share a cocktail or two and i'm gonna drag you out on the dance floor to some venga boys i think i saw on the yes on the list. oh you you will have to drag me out but once i'm up there i'll be all right just if you could just um allow me to slowly like a metronome try and find the beat and then when I'm there just don't laugh at me as you are doing now just don't just just try and just try and give me the benefit of the doubt for maybe the I first will. 20 seconds I'm gonna do the little <laughs> lasso thing you're gonna see me like lassoing you across the dance floor love it you're like love yeah it. great <laughs> thank you so very much for taking some time out to chat with me you've been an absolute joy oh no it's been a a, a real pleasure I'm gonna blow out the candles now um in a um garret room above the uh, glove maker shop and um, head home on my worry boat i love it thank you very much Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500.